The following program contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance and Jen. How are you both doing today? Going fantastic. I don't want to take up too much time before we find out how Jen's doing. Yeah, I'm doing pretty great. Thanks for having me back. Good. Well, welcome back. Yes, in today's episode that we're expecting to be a two-parter, we're going to speak about the serial killer known as Christopher Bernard Wilder. This is a a remarkable story. We're going back to the late 60s into the 80s, where this person's path of destruction was just incredible. And he was caught. Yeah, I also want to say that two of his potential victims, I'm not sure if he confessed to it or law enforcement connected them in some way forensically to Wilder, but victims remain missing. There are four missing women that are commonly attributed to Christopher Wilder, and some of this depends on source, but these women are Beth Kenyon, Rosario Gonzalez, Mary Oppitz, and Tammy Lynn Leppert. And there could very well be more, and some sources attribute Mary Hare's murder to Chris Wilder as well. Mary Oppitz has been missing since January 16th, 1981 from Fort Myers, Florida. White female. She was born on December 13th, 1963, which would make her 58 years old. She was 17 at the time of her disappearance, about 5 foot 4 inches to 5 foot 5 inches, around 105 pounds. And we'll be speaking about more of these victims in the episodes, but Tammy Lynn Leppert went missing from Rockledge, Florida on July 6th, 1983. She's a white female, 18 years old when she went missing, between 5'4 and 5'5 five, five, and 105 to 115 pounds. And another one of the young women that we mentioned in the episode, Rosario Gonzalez, is also still missing. She's been missing since February 26, 1984, from Miami, Florida. She is a Hispanic female. She was born on September 27, 1963, so she would be 58 years old. She was 20 years old when she went missing, 5 foot 6 inches, about 115 pounds. She had brown hair and brown eyes. And we'll also speak about the disappearance of Beth Kenyon. Her full name is Elizabeth Ann Kenyon. She's been missing from Coral Gables, Florida, since March 5th, 1984. She was 23 years old when she went missing, between 5'7 and 5'8, and about 125 pounds. Caucasian female with brown hair and hazel eyes. And, uh... A big shout out to our research assistant who put this together, Marianne White. She did a fantastic job organizing all the information, and this is going to be presented in a very storytelling way. So we hope that these two parts are going to be not only educational and informative, but listenable, (laughs) because we're going to be talking about some pretty brutal attacks and, and murders. Yeah, and that said, I do want to give a warning to people. I had a hard time reading through Marianne's research document. It was it was just horrific, so take care when listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're going to break quick for commercial here, and we'll be right back. Please follow us on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. 
kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back, not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened to O.J. Simpson and look what happened to Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. Canada, a vast idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the great white north, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottawa game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Christopher Wilder was born on March 13, 1945, in Australia to a U.S. naval serviceman and Australian mother. He has some nicknames, being a serial killer. He was known as the Beauty Queen Killer, the Pretty Girl Killer, and the Snapshot Killer. And during Wilder's reign of terror, he abducted and raped at least 11 young women and girls during a six-week cross-country crime spree from February 26 to April 13th of 1984. During this time, it seems like a very short duration. Jen, do you know any information on what the MO was? Did you remain consistent throughout his crime spree? You know, that's an interesting question because oftentimes we hear about serial killers that they have a pattern that they follow. That's what law enforcement uses to potentially link victims, um, the method of the killing, uh, the circumstances. But it seems that Wilder differed in each of the attacks. Some victims were tortured by electrocution. At least eight were killed by beating strangling, stabbing, or shooting, and three actually escaped, one after being left for dead. The bodies of four have been found. Uh, There are four still missing, and three survived. So a bit of background on Christopher Wilder. Christopher Bernard Wilder was born in Australia in 1945 to an American naval war hero. His father, Coley Wilder, married an Australian woman, June, while on leave during World War II. The family moved back and forth between Australia and the U.S. for some time, although he was primarily raised in the U.S. The family eventually settled in Sydney when Wilder was a teen in the late 1950s. And this is interesting being the child of a military person. And our friend and colleague, Sarah Kalin, has a theory about the uptick in serial killers in that time period. And the type of media that was put out there, moving around, not feeling like you have a place that you can call home, not feeling like you have consistent friends. And then all of the 
pulp magazines, all of the noir, hyper-violent book covers and magazine covers depicting incredible violence to women was super influential during that time. That's true. And not to mention the trauma that a lot of young men and women experienced during these wars. And Wilder started peeking into windows as a teen. And his first major crime was at 17 years old, where he participated in a gang sexual assault of a 13-year-old girl, and that was in 1962. He was sentenced to one year of probation, counseling, and possibly electric shock therapy, but that is unconfirmed. But I suppose that could make sense if he later did that to other people. Yeah, that's true. I mean... You definitely have to go out of your way to, like, perpetrate that kind of torture, Torture, you know? Like, you'd have to get a machine and, like, have that in your mind that that's something you want to do. I know we often hear with, like, other serial killers, they'll, like, perpetuate the trauma that they themselves have experienced. So I think you're right there, Tim. I'm curious about the other people who perpetrated this uh, assault of this 13-year-old girl. Who, like, where are they? What happened to them? Yeah, did they turn into spree killers? Yeah, I don't know. Was it some sort of like test you had to perform? You know, like like induction into gangs will often include like a violent attack that you have to participate in because the other gang members have something on you, something to blackmail you with in case you decide to flip and go to the authorities. So I wonder if it was that kind of situation or if it was like one of those, you know, rowdy boys out, boys night out nights, like and this just happened i don't know yeah and also like what happened with the 13 year old girl i'm very curious to know how she was able to handle that type of trauma in 1962 just entering into you know her later teen years into womanhood like that's gonna be in i mean there's ptsd all over that i bet oh my god i know And I mean, he was convicted, right? So there had to have been, you know, a trial, this girl would have had to testify, or at least at the very least, give her testimony behind closed doors. Um, So that's like more trauma piled on top of what she already experienced. And in 1968, at the age of 23, Wilder married Christine Pollock, whom he had met a year before on Sydney's Palm Beach. The couple was approached on Valentine's Day in 1969 regarding the investigation into the sexual assault of a student nurse. Even though Wilder admitted to the crime right away, the case was dropped because the victim refused to testify. And the marriage ended, however, as Pollock had found pictures of naked women and underwear that wasn't hers. She and her mother went to Sydney police with their suspicion that Wilder could be the Wanda Beach killer. But that case remains unsolved to this day. And Tim, yeah, you said that there was no case brought against Wilder or that it was dropped because his victim refused to testify. I mean, this just goes to show like how brave that 13-year-old girl was to go through that process. And absolutely no shame or blame on this next victim that like just couldn't put herself through that process. Yeah, great point. Thanks a lot for bringing that up, Jen. And uh, there are some conflicting reports about Wilder's marriage with Pollock as well. And some sources made it sound like they were divorced right away and others made it sound like it happened right after they were approached by detectives. So a little unclear there. But this Wanda Beach killings case, the crime involved the violent January 11th, 1965 deaths of schoolgirls Marianne Schmidt and Christine Chirac. 
and Wilder lived near the victims and was known to visit the shop where Christine worked. And his physical description and psychological profile mirror that of the perpetrator. However, by the time investigators got around to interviewing Wilder, he had moved away. Well, that's uh, incredibly good fortune on his part to elude any sort of questioning on that. And moving away, he moves to the United States. Boynton Beach, Florida, to be exact, in the 1970s, and he starts a construction and electrical contracting business. During this time, he also continued to nurture his interest in photography, uh, meaning the types of photographs that were found previously, nudes and, and women in their underwear. Remarkably, he makes a fortune in construction and real estate and purchases a Porsche 911, which he raced. Not sure if he raced it on a pro level, but according to our notes here, he did race. He had a speedboat. He had a luxurious bachelor pad. From 1971 to 1975, he faced several charges related to sexual misconduct. It's always remarkable to me that someone who can be so successful in one aspect of their lives can be a complete maniac in another section of their lives. And I just personally speaking, it's hard enough just for me to do a job and pay the bills and, you know, walk the dog as I can't. Uh, wrap my head around a completely separate life when you're doing something like this. Yeah, this profile kind of reminds me of the um, American Psycho movie and yeah. book, you know, like where this guy is like super buttoned up. He holds down a job. He's very successful, rich even. And then he just like loses his mind. Um, I wonder if the author of that book looked at this case at all. That's actually a good point. Yeah, interesting uh, for sure. And in 1974, Wilder drugged and assaulted a vacationing teen that he had drawn to his truck with the promise of photographing her for a modeling contract, and this later became his telltale M.O. And he was convicted, but due to plea bargains and promises of psychiatric care, he never served any time. And Wilder was also accused of forcing a high school student to perform oral sex on him in a house that he was renovating. And he was ultimately acquitted, even though doctors said he was not safe in an unstructured environment and needed supervised treatment. Again, this is like mind blowing to me that the guy could start a construction and electrical business, be extremely successful at it, and then also perpetrate all of these horrific acts and have a doctor say he wasn't safe in an unstructured environment. I'm, it just blows my mind. He needed supervised treatment. Really, that's the part that blows your mind that he had a like successful business? That he was able to maintain both lifestyles. And then when his other side comes out and he's convicted and recommended to not be unsupervised and, and he, he couldn't function in an unstructured environment, it's two completely separate people. So yeah, that's pretty mind-blowing to me. Yeah, yeah, it's a real... Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation. But that's kind of the like pitfall of like um, villainizing serial killers or people like that. This like thinking of them as monsters as something subhuman. Like I think most serial killers or people who perpetrate violent crimes like do appear normal. Like they do have like a, a normal life. They might even be married. They might keep relationships up. People describe them as nice nice guys, you know. But yeah, I don't think it's that shocking that he was able to have a business. What's shocking to me is that he had been picked up so many times and in two different countries and been evaluated evaluated by doctors and yet he like just slips through the cracks. Yeah. 
So he goes back to Australia in December of 1982 to visit his parents. And while he was there, oh, here we go again. He's charged with sexual offenses against two 15-year-old girls on December 28, 1982. So it doesn't waste much time before getting right back into it. The nature of the attack included him allegedly blindfolding the girls and forcing them to pose nude. Then he bound them and masturbated on them before letting them go. So this is probably a bit of a testing ground for him to see how far he can push this. Wilder's parents, God bless them, raised $150,000 for his bail. His uncle, Anton Jurisevich, gave $200,000 towards his bail, and he was allowed to return to Florida while awaiting trial from Australia. I cannot believe he was able to leave the country during this time. That's insane. The trial was postponed multiple times and with the final trial date set for April 1984. However, ultimately, Wilder never stood trial for these crimes. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who's about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And Wilder's deadly crime spree began on February 26th, 1984, when aspiring model Rosario Gonzalez, who was 20 years old, went missing. She had been working on promotions for a sponsor of the Miami Grand Prix, and Wilder was there racing his Porsche 911. Rosario had reportedly previously posed for a book cover with Wilder as the photographer. So I'm a little confused. Was Wilder actually a photographer who would sell his photographs to like books and magazines and stuff? Or was this just a ruse to get women alone? It sounds like in that case, um, he actually had a real gig, real photography gig. Um, 
it's probably a pretty thin line between amateur and professional, you know, when you're just starting out. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and she had posed for a book cover with Wilder as a photographer, so it might have been something where they had met and she had this deal in place to be on the cover of this book and he convinced her that he was a you know qualified photographer. I'm I'm curious like where he got the experience like if he actually was a good photographer yeah i mean the way it's worded here in our research document is that she posed for a book cover i don't know if this is just something wilder said that it was for a book cover or if there was an actual book cover that she appeared on and a week later on march 5th 1984 elizabeth beth Kenyon of coral gables a miss florida finalist disappeared Beth's family hired a private investigator who found she had recently gone out with three men, one of them being Wilder. Wilder had actually even proposed to Beth, but she declined because there was a 17-year age difference. Two attendants at a local gas station frequented by Beth said they saw her on March 5th filling up gas when a man in a gray Cadillac pulled up behind her and paid for the gas. And this man was later identified as Wilder. He really jumps the gun on proposing marriage. Yeah, I was going to comment on that. Like, how long did they know each other? It seems like she was getting gas on the day she disappeared, March 5th. And so he just, like, pulls up behind her, starts chatting with her, and is like, hey, you want to get married? Like, what the hell? It is a really interesting point. Well, they probably knew each other prior. Well, yeah, it seems like it because uh, she had gone out with him. Um, at one point, so maybe he he proposed on their date, but why is he behind her at a gas station? Was he stalking her, or was he just coincidentally there? No, he was definitely there, and then he paid for the gas, got got on her safe side. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe they were, he was following her somewhere, like, you know, an arranged thing. It's like, okay, we're going to drive separately, but I'm going to stop for gas. I don't know. That's strange. And over the next several weeks, Wilder roamed the country using fake and stolen business cards as a fashion photographer or modeling agent. So this is where he's comfortably settling into his, would this be considered an MO, posing as a a modeling agent in order to lure the uh, young women in? Yeah. So he's finding that this is easy for him now to convince people that this is what he does. Right, yeah, and his victims are so young, I'm sure they'd be dazzled by the attention, and you know, like wanting to be famous, maybe. I know at least one of them had previous modeling experience, so maybe it wasn't so strange for her to be approached like this. That's a good point. I mean, how many times had these individuals been approached by non-threatening or, I mean, even less threatening individuals? I mean, yeah, all of his victims were were approached before by men, right, Um, due to their looks because they were all attractive girls. So, I mean, just being a woman in in like a modern way and not in the 70s and 80s, like men give you attention all the time. They like catcall you, you know, they ask for your number, they make you uncomfortable in a thousand different ways. So I'm sure this like barely even registered to them that um, Wilder would walk up and say like, hey, you're beautiful. Would love to take your photograph. Gosh, doesn't that sound so much more dangerous than today? I mean, similar things happen today where models are approached by people looking to produce projects, but a lot of that happens online. And that MO that Wilder had would be different today. 
I think. Mm-hmm. And you can't quickly like Google Google the man's name either. Like they totally trusted him. And back in Florida, Wilder abducted Teresa Terry Walt Ferguson, who was 21 years old, from a mall and left her body in Canaveral Groves. In Tallahassee, he lured Linda Grover, who was 19, to his car. He knocked her unconscious and raped her in a Georgia hotel. He reportedly shocked her with electrical wires and glued her eyes shut. And even despite all of this happening to her, Grover was able to break free and Wilder fled criminologists would have a field day with this glued the eyes shut there there are ways to make people not see what you're doing and that feels like a very extreme measure like that has to really impact your vision for the rest of your life like it felt it it feels to me like this was more than just not wanting the person to see what was happening at the time or to like see his face Oh, totally. It's like meant to inflict pain at the same time, right? Permanent pain. Well, it's amazing that she was able to break free and get out of there, or at least he didn't want to deal with it anymore because we're told that he fled the scene. I cannot imagine what Linda went through during that attack. I mean, that must have been the most terrifying thing ever. And to like have the strength and the wherewithal blinded by glue to like get up and get out of there it's just what an incredible story keep fighting you know keep fighting that's insane yeah and um just a quick google of linda grover uh you know doesn't come up much so uh can't can't seem to learn too much about her now after her attack um but my goodness what a survivor yeah i hope she's living a good life And on March 16th, the Miami Herald reported that a wealthy contractor and race car driver was suspected in the disappearances of Rosario Gonzalez and Beth Kenyon. At a counseling appointment that same day, he was asked if he was involved, but denied any involvement in the missing woman's cases. So this was during like a like a psychology appointment? Because I mean, usually there's like a like a doctor patient privilege there where the psychologist or psychiatrist is not able to divulge what happened in session so maybe that came like much later um that he had denied any involvement in these women's disappearances do you think this is like a court ordered counseling likely i doubt that wilder himself would seek counseling of his own volition yeah i agree (laughs) but i wonder like who brought it up like would that counseling session probably wasn't for those cases because while he might have been a suspect, there was no like sentencing or something like that. So did he bring it up? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for one of those earlier cases, for one of the earlier sexual assaults, he was, you know, remanded on probation. And like maybe that was part of his probation that he seek counseling. So I don't know how long that, that carried forward or how long his probation was. And on March 18th, he dropped off his dogs. He had dogs? Yeah, that's kind of shocking too, huh? I think. Yeah, I don't think most killers uh, do, most serial killers anyway. Yeah, like he was taking care of another living thing, and he withdrew almost fifty thousand dollars from the bank. He told his business partner he was being framed and that he would not go to jail. He got in his nineteen seventy three Chrysler New Yorker and drove away. On the same day, Terry Ferguson, twenty one, did not return home after going shopping at a mall close to home in Satellite Beach. Her stepfather found her car in the mall parking lot, but she was nowhere to be found. 
I just want to circle back on his business partner. So again, this is somebody who was cunning enough to convince another adult who was capable and willing to get into a business relationship with him that he was okay, that he was of sound mind. And now it started to unravel a bit to the point where this was all coming out and now what you're being framed and you're, you're saying you're not going to jail. Like how long was that relationship going on before the business partner started to suspect that this wasn't the person he originally thought he was getting into business with or did he? Yeah. Great questions. Um, yeah, I guess it, it, maybe it depends on, on that person's personality type. Um, because it seems, seems like Wilder was a psychopath. And, uh, we do know that, some some people who fit that criteria are infectious and um, can convince people of things. Yeah, that's totally true. And I wonder what he told his business partner he was being framed for. Like, was it a sexual assault? And he was like, you know, this woman, you know, is after my money and is accusing me or whatever. Or if he was like, I'm being framed for murder and I got to get out of here. Like, I would think the former rather than the latter. Well, it sounds like he was spiraling a bit when he leaves and then immediately abducts a 21-year-old young woman. And approximately one hour after Terry Ferguson, the 21-year-old, was last seen, Wilder called a tow truck to pull his car out of the sand on a state road near Canaveral Groves. He claims he had gotten lost, and he paid for the tow truck with his business partner's stolen credit card. It's a lot of gall. Don't touch the 50000 yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously. Go through everything that's not yours first. Um, yeah, and it, and if we recall, um, I believe Terry's remains were found in Canaveral Groves, and that's how they were able to connect her murder with, with uh, Wilder. Wilder is also believed to have killed Daytona Beach 8th grader Colleen Orsborne, who was 15 around the same time and her body was found days after her disappearance, but was not officially identified until 25 years later. And according to the FBI in 1984, Wilder was the prime suspect. And again, Colleen Orsborne's case is how we found out about Christopher Wilder in the first place. Um, we do mention Wilder in our episode, our first episode, on Alicia Markovich's disappearance just about a month ago. 25 years later, but her body was found days after her disappearance, makes me wonder just what type of damage he did to her and why that wasn't immediately identifiable. Yeah, you'd think the like law enforcement and the community at large would be on high alert after, you know, a young girl, as young as 15, an eighth grader, had disappeared. Um, it would seem if her remains were found, they'd look at their, you know, list of, of missing children and connect it earlier, but apparently not. Yeah, that is surprising, you know, because apparently Wilder was the prime suspect way back in 1984. Yeah, that is that is shocking and tragic. It is interesting, right? Her yeah. body was found days later. The same year, the FBI considers Wilder the prime suspect of that particular murder, but she wasn't officially identified until 25 years later. So I wonder... Did everyone just know that that was her and they didn't need to officially identify her or how did that play out? Gosh, I hope not. Right. Did they did they find a body and then just connect it to him without knowing the identity? It makes me think of her family, you know, like they're waiting 25 years for answers. Right? 
I sure hope they knew before 25 years had elapsed. And on March 20th, Wilder made his way to Tallahassee, Florida. And Linda Grover, who was 19, was shopping close to Florida State University when Wilder approached her, lured her to his car, clubbed her, and headed north to Georgia. He pulled over once to bind her hands and tape her mouth. During another stop, he put her in the trunk. And Wilder checked into a motel in Bainbridge where he proceeded to glue her eyes shut, shock her with electrical wires, and ultimately raped and throttled her. Good Lord. Throttled. Yeah, what does that mean in this context? Maybe strangled. Not to the point of death, obviously. But Linda managed to get away from Wilder. Um, she did this by locking herself in the motel bathroom where she screamed and banged on the walls. Wilder allegedly panicked, grabbed everything he had, and ran. And after waiting like more than half an hour, Linda wrapped herself in a bedsheet. Wilder had taken her clothing, ran to the manager's office, and called the police. My God. Mm-hmm. And after all of this had happened, Linda was also like able to remember what car he had kidnapped her in, as well as like a detailed description of his appearance, even though he had glued her eyes shut. And Wilder had stupidly used his own Florida driver's license to register at the motel, and an APB was issued immediately. So he's getting a little bit reckless and a little bit sloppy by leaving his driver's license there. And maybe he's not taking into account the amount of violence somebody can put out there when they're being electrocuted. Maybe there's a connection there, that these electrical shocks are actually causing the victims to fight harder. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've never been, I've never had electrical shocks, but... I did. I mean, you, you, your body has a pretty violent reaction when you have an electrical shock. Maybe, maybe that was something that was triggering them to to fight harder, if as opposed to as as opposed to another type of beating. But she was beaten too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I accidentally got shocked by like a high voltage chicken wire fence many years ago, and it like left me completely drained like no i'm like yeah you jolt and stuff but it's not like you have control of your faculties after the fact then that's even more impressive to me that if you're being shocked repeatedly and you're still fighting back yeah seriously oh my gosh poor linda and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions. But the Down East region can have a dark side. 
I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And Wilder was not done. He left Georgia and headed west. And murders continued in Texas, Kansas, and Utah. Terry Walden, who is 24 years old, a nurse, a wife, and a mother in Beaumont, Texas, told her husband that an older, bearded man approached her about modeling for him and going to his car to see samples of his work. She refused. But two days later, on March 23rd, she vanished, and she had been last seen at the student union at approximately 11.30 a.m. Her orange Mercury Cougar was also missing from the parking lot. Well, it was a smart move on her end to refuse this. I think that is uh, pretty much a universal rule to not go with anybody who's randomly approaching you and telling you that, you could be a model and, hey, come to my car to see samples of my work. You might as well be saying, hey, I'm a serial killer. Yeah, seriously. And I, th- I think Terry was uh, just a bit older and maybe a little bit more experienced than Wilder's other victims who were, for all intents and purposes, children, you know, mm-hmm. teenagers and stuff who just like might not know. Yeah, I mean, this is a time when people were still hitchhiking and these things just weren't part of our consciousness, you know. He continued to, I guess, stalk her because two days later she's gone. She has enough time to tell her husband that this thing happened. And apparently he just either didn't want his description out there or he really had fixated on her. Yeah, good point there. Yeah, but he clearly um, somehow returned or followed her home or something. Mm -hmm. That points to another maybe facet of Wilder's MO because there was a previous victim that uh, we were told they had gone on a date and uh, then he pulled up behind her at a gas station, paid for her gas and stuff. Like maybe that was, you know, an instance of him following her. It's like if he didn't get it the first time, he was going to follow her and make sure he did the second. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. And also on March 23rd, a female body was found in a snake-infested canal 70 miles west of Satellite Beach. Dental records helped identify the body as that of Terry Ferguson, who had gone missing earlier that month in Satellite Beach. A witness came forward who stated that they saw Terry talking to an older man on the day she went missing. The witness picked Wilder's photo from a photo lineup. 
so I'm just curious what you guys are thinking about the period of time, this duration that has been his reign of violence. It was late February the 26th. That's when the first victim was abducted. And we're not even talking, you know, just about a month at this point. It's like he's on a predetermined fatalistic path. Do you think? Definitely. Yeah, and I I even wonder about the classification as serial killer for Wilder. I think in in my opinion he's more of a spree killer because I, I think serial killers are known by a period of like a cooldown period between victims and this just seems like he just was not stopping. Like whether it was psychosis or he just decided to like not limit himself. It's not like he's meticulously planning these abductions and and murders and stuff it's it's just like whoever happens by whoever strikes his fancy he just you know takes out i agree uh to a certain extent but he's definitely got a similar mo that he's still following and if the young girls marianne schmidt and christine chirac are also his victims then there would have been a little bit of a cool down period yeah it's true i don't even know if it matters either like what we call him yeah asshole <laughs> exactly i don't think it matters either what we call him but I think I was incorrect in, uh, in saying that he was getting sloppy when he provided his ID when he rented that motel room. It could be that he just didn't care and he knew that this was going to end badly. So he might as well escalate and do as much damage during as much time as he thought he had left before he was caught. Which I think is important if you're looking at other circumstances of other missing persons, if there's these sloppy indications that somebody might be on a path towards absolute destruction for the person that they've kidnapped and themselves, there have to be some 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 markers that would identify that along the way. Yeah, I think it definitely seems like he, he didn't care at all. He thought eventually people, you know, law enforcement would catch up with them. There's no care at all taken in like cleaning up after himself or really hiding the victims' uh, bodies. And then like his his last victim in Florida, well, third to last victim in Florida, he had taken her car, her uh, cougar, and he was driving that around. He's, he's driving the vehicle of a missing person, which is just, you know, a huge red flag if a savvy police officer were to run those plates. Yeah, I agree that he seems like he's he knows he's on a path to destruction that's uh, that's definitely going to end with his death. I wonder how long this would have gone on if it didn't end the way it ended. And we'll get to that conclusion soon, but would he just keep going and going? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing about this says that he was going to stop. 